The Nature Podcast is supported by Nature Plus, a flexible monthly subscription that grants immediate online access to the science journal Nature and over 50 other journals from the Nature Portfolio. More information at go.nature.com slash plus. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Nature in experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data's... I find this... Not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, what a trove of fossil fish reveal about the evolution of jawed vertebrates and why policy affecting trans people's lives needs to take a more evidence-based approach. I'm Benjamin Thompson. Humans are, according to Nature editor Henry G., a particular kind of specialised bony fish. Go back far enough and our distant ancestors were swimming the seas, having successfully evolved bones, while another group were exploring the options of a cartilaginous skeleton, the ancestors of today's sharks and rays. The period in which a lot of this evolution and diversification was happening is called the Silurian, which began 448.3 million years ago. But exactly what was going on with fish during the Silurian has never quite been clear. Reporter Sharmini Bundell spoke to Henry G to find out about some new fossils that could shed light on the matter. Thanks for chatting to me, Henry. I wanted to get you on because we have four papers um, coming through in Nature this week about new fossils from the Silurian period. That's correct. Yeah, not one, not two, not three, but four papers. (laughs) And so the Silurian is pretty key to this story, I think. So this was a period when on land there were sort of uh, plants and arthropods and insects kind of taking over and the sea was full of weird and wonderful fish creatures, which is mostly what we're going to be talking about. But I wondered if you could sort of set the scene a bit for this sort of Silurian story and maybe introduce us to what was going on at that time and and some of the kinds of characters we might be talking about. Cast your mind back, if you will, to the Devonian period, which was after the Silurian period, which began about 490 million years ago. That's generally known as the age of fishes. But the Silurian period just before that was when a lot of fishes originated. But we haven't got many really good fossils of them. They tend to be a bit scruffy and scrappy and fragmentary, uh, which is uh, inconvenient because um, a lot of the major evolution in early fishes was happening about then. And a particularly successful evolutionary invention of this kind of time is jaws, basically, so jawed fish. 
The earliest vertebrates didn't have jaws. Their mouths were kind of suckers. And only two kinds of jawless vertebrates survive today. They're the lamprey and the hagfish. So we want to know what was going on in the Silurian that led to all the varieties of jawed fish and jawed creatures now, which includes us, that we see today. This is what these papers are all about. Now, these days, there are two kinds of jawed vertebrates. There are the bony fishes. So, you know, cod, halibut, sturgeons, seahorses, uh, they're all bony fishes. And then there are the cartilaginous fishes, the sharks and rays. But back in the day, there were two other extinct groups of jawed vertebrates there were these little tiddly fish called acanthodians or spiny sharks they have no internal uh, bony skeleton so they're quite hard to get a grasp on and the other group are placoderms these were armored jawed fishes and it is likely that all the other groups of jawed vertebrates arose from somewhere in the radiation of placoderms. So let's get on to these four papers then. So um, this is a team of paleontologists in China who've discovered several new fossils. How did this come about? Yeah, Min Zhu and his crew have hit on a fantastic fish bed, a layer of bones dating from the early Silurian near Chongqing in South China. And rather than just a usual scrappy mess, they found entire articulated skeletons of uh, fishes that really allow us to get a much better view of early fish life. What's your favourite finding of, of of the four fossil papers? Well, one of the most intriguing is going to be a fish called Shushanosteus, which is a placoderm, one of those early jawed vertebrates, probably from which all the others sprang somehow. This one was only a tiddler, about three centimetres long. Yeah, this one was quite small, but there are lots of different kinds of placoderms and the relationships between all of them is very kind of contested. But this one seems to combine in one body a lot of features of several otherwise disparate groups of placoderms and also shows signs of bony fishness. And this is going to cause a certain amount of head scratching in the fossil fish community. So that's the first of the papers. Uh, tell me a bit about the, the other fossils. There's Xenacanthus, another little fish that looks like a very early representative of the cartilaginous fish, but it has big dorsal fin plates like you don't see in sharks. This is a placoderm thing. And then we've got Chionodus, which is basically a load of teeth. These are the earliest jawed vertebrate teeth anywhere in the fossil record. And then there's another one called Fanjingshania, which looks like one of these spiny sharks or acanthodians, but there are no teeth associated with it. So when this was going through review, the referee said, hang about, maybe Chionodus is the teeth that Fanjingshania hasn't got, but Zhu et al. convinced everyone that actually this couldn't be the case. So Fanjingshania is a kind of toothless acanthodian. And then there's another great thing, which is not a jawed fish at all. It's a jawless fish called a galeaspid. Now, the thing about galeaspids is they were only known from their head shields that there, no other soft part was ever has ever been known. But this one has got the whole fish. 
and on each side on the kind of bottom edge of each side is a fold like a fold of fins like on each side like go faster stripes and this is kind of interesting because it looks like a precursor to what happened in jawed vertebrates which is the evolution of paired fins two at the front two at the back which turned into our arms and legs and the fun thing is they made some reconstructions of this fish and tested it aerodynamically and it would have generated lift it would have been a useful thing and this is the first time from this unique fish bed that we have a whole one does it confuse at all the story of their relations? Because our sort of modern understanding, we have a very clear tree of evolutionary relationships where you've got first they invented the jaws, then you've got the placoderms and then bony fish and cartilaginous fish. Has that picture changed at all? Oh, very, yes, Charmony. This picture is always changing. Many of these early fishes, they're not clearly definable into modern bony fish, modern cartilaginous fish and so on. They tend to have mixtures of features. So this early tiny shark thing, Xenacanthus, had bony plates like a placoderm. And this early placoderm had characteristics of bony fish Uh, so you tend to see that evolution was kind of experimenting all these groups hadn't quite parted ways yet they hadn't become as distinct as they are now and these new finds to use that well-worn phrase will um, raise more questions than they answer so this silurian story is is still being rewritten with new characters popping up all the time this discovery of this you know new locality it's going to produce lots more i'm i'm sure in the future and it's an entirely new refreshing window into the past that was henry g a senior editor at the nature journal talking with sharmani bundell you can find links to all four of the papers they discussed in the show notes next up on the podcast dan fox is here with this week's research highlights Some people with a rare genetic condition have heightened musical and verbal abilities. And now, thanks to studies in mice, we might know why. Williams-Buren syndrome is a condition caused by the absence of a specific chunk of genome. This can erase one copy of up to 27 genes and lead to cognitive deficits. But it can also enhance music skills. Researchers studied the auditory cortex, the brain sound processing centre, in mice missing the equivalent genes. They found that the loss of one copy of one gene enhanced the rodent's ability to distinguish different sound frequencies. The team suggest that losing this gene reduces the levels of a specific protein, which changes the function of some auditory cortex neurons. This change made the mice highly sensitive to small shifts in the frequency of a tone. Read that research in full in Cell. High-resolution imaging has revealed the secrets of how honeybees build their honeycombs. Honeycombs are one of nature's best-engineered structures, offering strength for minimal material use. They weigh less than a sheet of paper when empty, but can hold several kilograms of bees, honey and nectar. To watch a comb's evolution, researchers used high-energy x-rays to create 3D images with micrometer-scale resolution. These revealed that bees first create a corrugated vertical structure that acts as the comb's foundation. Its bumps and depressions form a pattern of hexagons on which bees deposit bulbs of wax. 
and then stretch the wax like pizza dough to build the honeycomb cell's walls. Construction goes from top to bottom, with the bees reinforcing the foundation with more wax as the comb grows. The team say that these insights could lead to improvements in the structural design of synthetic materials. You don't need to comb the web for that research, it's in advanced materials. Next up, reporter Adam Levy is looking at the lack of evidence in transgender policy. What does good policy look like? Of course, any policy has to take into account a host of considerations, from the ethical to the social. But for many, good policies should also be backed up by evidence. What are the impacts of a policy and are the justifications for a policy supported by the data? And this question is particularly relevant right now for trans people. Transgender people are people whose gender doesn't line up with the gender they were assigned at birth. So, for example, a trans woman is a woman who was assigned male at birth. That's as compared to a cisgender person whose gender is the same as they were assigned at birth. Around the world, many laws are being proposed and passed on the rights of transgender people to participate in various aspects of society. But how well does the available evidence back up all these new policies? Well, not so well, according to Paisley Currer, researcher of political science and women's and gender studies. He's got a worldview out in this week's Nature, arguing that policy over trans people's lives needs to take a more evidence-based approach. I caught up with him and we started by discussing what kinds of policies we're talking about, particularly in the US. In the United States, we've seen, for example, a raft of bills in state legislatures, almost 20 have passed, that have said trans girls can't play in women's and girls' teams and women's and girls' sports. Another example would be some of the legislatures and more local libraries and school boards banning the teaching of anything related to transgender people. So we have quite a lot of stuff happening on that end. Now, for sports, for example, just how big a thing even is this in the first place, the the idea of trans people and especially trans girls playing sports with other children of their gender, other girls? Right. Well, in terms of the political legislative response, it's really like a solution in search of a problem. So, for example, in Utah, they have 75,000 students in Utah who play high school sports. They have one transgender girl, and there was no issues raised about that transgender girl, yet the Utah legislature passed a bill banning trans girls from playing girls' sports. So when the governor of Utah, who was a Republican, he vetoed the bill, he said never has so much ire been directed at so few. And unfortunately, the legislator overrode his veto and it became law. The political response is out of whack with what's going on on the ground. And recently, actually, in August, a judge reversed this law, and so there's been a lot of back and forth here. But regardless, a lot of laws governing the lives of trans people are being pushed forward, and in many cases are passing. In your worldview, you argue that these policies are running counter to the research, counter to the data. Take a particular spate of policies around which people can use which bathrooms. What does the data say here? 
Right. Well, there's no good solid data saying that uh, allowing trans people to use the bathroom associated with their gender identity poses a problem. For example, there was a study that looked at jurisdictions in Massachusetts that had laws that ensured that people could use the bathroom associated with their gender identity, and it compared those jurisdictions with jurisdictions that didn't have that. And they found no evidence that these laws put anyone, including women, at risk, and that the fears of safety were completely unfounded. The other issue we mentioned was which people can play which sports. This question is often asked in a very blanket way. Should trans people, especially trans women, be able to compete in sports with people of their own gender? What kind of research is there in this area? Unfortunately, the discussion sometimes isn't about comparing cisgender women to transgender women and what advantages transgender women might have or what disadvantages they might have. Some of the policymaking actually focuses on comparing cisgender men with cisgender women, and that's like a different question. Trans women are not the same as cis men. Now, what about something really fundamental, healthcare, and healthcare in particular for transgender people? For example, hormone therapies, which are designed to alter an individual's hormones to levels that better reflect their gender identity. How is policy now aligning, or perhaps I should say misaligning, with research? I think maybe that's the most extreme in the bans on trans-affirming care we see, especially in the United States. For example, policymakers will describe hormone therapy as experimental and not proven and unsafe. And like 22 major medical associations have said, no, we've been doing this for a long time. It's not experimental. It's safe. It leads to good outcomes. But like with other issues where science is involved, it becomes a he said, she said thing. And what's interesting is that conservative judges, sometimes appointed by President Trump even, when they look at these issues in court and they're faced with the evidence, they've ruled against the conservative lawmakers again and again. So it's really kind of a sign that the lawmakers are kind of turning transgender issues into a political issue that's got very little to do with the evidence. Now, some people will say that this is purely a political issue and perhaps question why we're talking about it on the Nature podcast and talking about it in the pages of Nature. Why do you think these questions are questions that the research community ought to think about. I think the research community is concerned with people and with harms that people suffer. So I do think it's a mistake and it doesn't really help anyone when we get into these abstract fights about what is gender and what is sex. And that becomes politicized, becomes all about culture. I think it's so important for us to focus on the harms that actual people face when they're denied gender-affirming care or they're like some seventh-grade volleyball player who's told that they can't play in the girls' volleyball team. And when you bring it down to that level, we can see the importance of research to show that these policies are really not needed. Do you think that research and data are the only things that should be informing these kinds of policies? No, because I think ultimately it's also a human rights issue. So I think we have to always kind of keep that as a backdrop to make sure that every individual has the right to affirm their gender identity and to express their gender. So for example, with bathrooms, the biggest victims of harassment in bathrooms are often gender nonconforming cisgender women. They're the ones who are threatened, assaulted, chased out of bathrooms. And we don't need research to say that gender nonconforming cisgender women should be allowed to use the women's bathroom. That's just a human rights point. That was Paisley Kura from the City University of New York. So check out his worldview. Look for a link in the show notes. And that's all we've got time for this week. But just before we go, time to mention a new video on our YouTube channel about research trying to crack the nature of consciousness by dosing volunteers with psychedelic drugs and scanning their brains. Look out for a link to that in the show notes. 
Don't forget, you can keep in touch with us over on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast, or you can send us an email to podcast at nature.com. I'm Benjamin Thompson. See you all next time. The Nature Podcast is supported by Nature Plus, a flexible monthly subscription that grants immediate online access to the science journal Nature and over 50 other journals from the Nature Portfolio. More information at go.nature.com slash plus. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.